Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Nothing About You Says Computer Technology, a podcast about cybersecurity and data privacy viewed through the lens of diverse voices. I'm your host, Anthony, a cybersecurity, data privacy, and regulatory attorney based in Oklahoma City. While I am a lawyer, I am not your lawyer, and this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Instead, think of this as a conversation between friends. But if you need legal advice, please, please, please find a local attorney that can help you. Today, we have an amazing episode. I interviewed Laura Bellmain, the founder and CEO of SafeStack, an online training platform. We chatted about her background and journey to becoming a tech founder, the work she does at SafeStack, and the importance of cybersecurity for everyone, along with a discussion of diversity in cybersecurity. I hope you enjoy our conversation. We are super excited to have Laura Bell Main here today. Laura is the founder and CEO of SafeStack, an online training platform. Laura has a background in software development and information security. Thank you so much for joining us today on the show. I know I just gave you a very short introduction, but could you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And it's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so I'm, like most engineers, uh, never intended to be an engineer and kind of uh, found myself in the strange place where I am part software engineer, part information security person and part business owner, which is a real mess of a job title, if I'm completely honest. Well, we'll talk about the work that you do at SafeStack a little bit later. But first, I want to talk about your origin story. A number of our listeners are just starting on their career in cybersecurity and then the technology field in general. How did you first become interested in cybersecurity? Um, I'd love to say I had a great plan and, you know, I followed my plan. I went to right school. I didn't. Not at all. Um, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Um, uh, and a second choice, if I couldn't be a lawyer, I was going to be Scully from the X-Files. But, you know, life happened. And when I was 16, I found that I actually had to support myself. And so in my hometown, which is famous really for car theft and teenage pregnancy, there was pretty much two job choices. I could go and work for McDonald's, you know, full respect. It's, you know, a valid path. Or there was this weird tech company that had an apprentice program and I'd never really done computers before. But I was like, oh, I'll go and give it a shot and I'll try the interview. And they just had me solving puzzles. So I became the youngest COBOL developer in my hometown, uh, age 16. Um, and since then, I have just kind of said yes to a lot of things. And I've gone from being COBOL to Java to studying artificial intelligence and robotics and eventually found myself doing counterterrorism and trying to protect young people online from harm. And my boss at the time, I was supposed to be a Java developer, he noticed I was very good at putting my fingers where they weren't supposed to be in the code and finding bugs. And as a result, he was like, Laura, we like you, you're a nice person, but seriously, can you stop? There's this whole team over here that does security and they mess with things all the time. Perhaps you could go work with them. And so I found myself going and working for a cybersecurity team and becoming a pen tester and then later going on to uh, be a hybrid between how we build amazing systems and how we keep them safe. There are so many ways to get into the tech space. I've interviewed people with PhDs to people who went through certificate programs, but you have a bachelor's in computer science and artificial intelligence. Can you talk about uh, how college prepared you to do the work that you're doing now? Absolutely. Now, full disclosure to all those folks who are listening, going artificial intelligence, that's super relevant. How cool. This was 15 years ago. I picked a degree subject that had no jobs at all. Uh, this was not good planning. But 
What it did give me um, was the ability to study something I was genuinely curious about. What I wanted was to go and understand how things worked. And my university gave me a lot of opportunities to go and see and work with teams doing cool things. So we had a team in the building who were doing uh, space rovers back when that was a thing and we were building robotic things to go up to Mars. And so I used it rather than it being about learning this language or that language, because you're going to pick that up over your career anyway. It was about learning how to be curious and how to play with technology and how to explore it so that whatever you decide to build in the world, you've got those skills to go, all right, do I know how to do this? No. Can I figure it out? Absolutely. Yes, I can. I want to talk about the work that you do at SafeStack. Could you walk us through what your company does? Sure. So we're an online training platform and our mission, if you will, is to create a team of 30 million security minded software developers. So we're we're a weird security company. We're we're kind of optimists. We really think there's some amazing technology being built that is going to change the world. So robot doctors, self-driving cars, all of these things are being built right now. And that's exciting. And one of the things we all have to do as engineers is find ways to keep those systems and their data secure. So we provide a range of training courses and qualifications and hands-on labs for learning how to do security all the way through the software development process. And then almost most importantly, we have a community, which is a safe space to come together and say, hey, I have no idea what I'm doing and what have you done? And not just talking to security people like me, but to other development teams from all around the world. What was the idea behind you founding the company? What was kind of the reason that that, that drove you to found the company? So uh, back in 2020, when COVID first really started affecting day-to-day life, um, my little company had been a consultancy for a while. So we'd been teaching in person and doing, uh, helping out really high-growth organizations all around the world. But there's something very unfair about that. There are literally millions of software developers around the world, but only a very small proportion of them get any help with security. The rest are sort of just left to their own devices. Um, When COVID hit, my consultancy dropped 94% of revenue overnight. It it was a very bad day. There may have been tears. Um, And so me and my co-founder, we sat down and we said, well, what can we do? Well, we could eat a lot of ice cream and just cry, or we could just try and do something bold. So we started building a platform in the April of 2020, and we had it launched into market in October. And now, two years in, we're in 68 countries and about 900 organizations, which is just mind-blowing. According to reporting from the Wall Street Journal, less than 2% of enterprise software startups in the U.S. have at least one female founder. As a woman founder in the tech space, what advice do you have for anyone, but especially women, about entering into this industry? Yeah, it's it's a really tough challenge, and it's something I would really love to see addressed um, in the coming years. For me, the biggest lesson that I learned, and therefore probably is useful to those who are thinking about founding their own thing, is to own the fact that you're different. I went to accelerators and I went to those mentoring programs where they teach you how to pitch and things, but they're all designed for, if I'm completely honest, 20-something-year-old, very confident college grads from probably San Francisco. Um, And so, you know, telling me to wear jeans, put my hands on my hips and pretend I'm Mark Zuckerberg, it's not going to be a thing. You have a different style as a woman. Your communication is different. Your thought process is different. It's not wrong, but it's a superpower that you really need to lean into and kind of embrace. And it took me a while to realize that that difference was something to be proud of uh, and stand by rather than just trying to sound like every other founder out there. 
The tech space, along with a lot of other businesses, have been suffering significant layoffs recently, uh, which raises two questions. The first is how you and SafeStack have been navigating this change in the market. Uh, but the second question is a cybersecurity focused question. A lot of these cuts often significantly impact cybersecurity. What would you tell companies about the impact of getting rid of their cybersecurity teams? Awesome. Let's break that into the two questions. So how have we been navigating? It is tough times. I'm going to send massive sympathy and support to all those people listening who may have been affected by this. I think we're talking about a quarter of a million jobs in the last six months, and that's just heartbreaking. We're only 22 people, so we're not very big, but we have made a promise that nobody gets left behind. So we we play very tight with our budget. So, you know, we spend when we need to, but we're very cautious. We do a lot of experimentation and use a lot of data in our decision making. Um, and because we live in a tiny island in the middle of nowhere, you, we can't really splash out and, you know, have the same budgets as our overseas counterparts. So that helps. Uh, we've also, you know, the other side of this big layoff is this massive inflation all around the world. So prices are going up. It's harder to afford the basics now. And so we're trying to manage keeping the team, but also keeping our salaries in line with inflation. So making sure that people aren't worse off by staying with us. And there's a lot of toing and froing, there's a lot of balance in that. But, you know, fingers crossed, touch wood, uh, so far is all going well. Um, and we'll continue to play it very tight. It may, might not be that we hire many people this year, but we will definitely protect the people we have. When it comes to the larger cybersecurity problem with the layoffs, that's really tricky because for many organizations, they consider cybersecurity to be an add-on because it doesn't make money for the company. Um, you know, you can't charge more for it most of the time. And so when we lay off those teams because they're not adding to revenue, we expose the company to risk, not just risk from cybersecurity attack. But if you're a high growth company, it can also set you back when selling your product, because suddenly, you know, when somebody asks you, so how are you going to protect my data? You're not going to have a solid answer for that anymore. I think for those companies who've had to make that call, and that's you know an unfortunate situation, but if they've found themselves there, the most important thing to do is remember that security isn't about big, expensive devices or gadgets or programs. It's about the little exercises and steps every single one of us do, do every day. So if you're not going to be able to have a security team anymore, it's important to find ways to empower everyone that remains to do those key actions uh, on a recurring basis, because the security problem won't go away. You're just going to have less people to deal with it. You wrote an interesting blog post on your website about things that cybersecurity employees can do to protect their companies when faced with lower budgets and reduced workforce. Could you share some of those recommendations with us? Sure, absolutely. Um, you can check out the blog at blog.safestack.io if you do want to see it. But um, the key thing is, and I'm going to admit something to you here, I'm fundamentally very lazy. And that is a good thing. Always, if you know you're a lazy person, admit it. It's going to be a good thing. Because in tech, you have a superpower that makes laziness into efficiency, and that's automation. So what we're looking at is looking at those jobs around our lives that you can turn into something that's a script or it's an alert or it's a Slack notification that's scheduled on a Tuesday. None of these things have to be difficult, but if you can find little ways to automate them, you can do a lot with very little. The other thing is if you do have to choose tools and you're choosing what to spend your money on, focus on empowering your team first before buying devices. Remember devices are there as efficiency plays most of the time, so our security tooling is there to make you faster and more consistent. But it's not the only way to do the job. If you empower the team, you can get a lot done 
albeit a little bit more, you know, rough around the edges, um, but without that huge cash outlay of a big expensive tool that then has to be fed and watered. Our listeners really enjoy when I have leaders of companies on the show because they can share insight about about what they look for in new employees. As someone who hires employees, what non-technical skills do you look at for potential employees? So SafeStack is a remote company, completely remote. We have one teeny tiny office, and that's only because I have a very young child and it drives me completely bonkers to stay at home with them. Um, So when we're hiring, the skills are very important for the role, but the primary thing is cultural fit. So when you're working remotely, we're looking for people who can communicate really openly and transparently, despite the fact they're very far apart. People who can give and receive feedback in a useful way, because when as a young company, as a small company, we fail all the time. We're constantly falling over and grazing our knees. So we need people who can take the feedback and go, "Okay, we learned something. What can we do differently? And finally, we're looking for people who understand themselves. So, you know, we live in pretty difficult times for many reasons now, wherever you are in the world. And for those people who are working remotely, I want to know that they know how they're feeling that day. They know how they're presenting to work. And are they 100% right now? Or actually, is there something going on? And are they comfortable kind of talking that through so that we can balance this out? The only way that we're going to do big things as a small team is if we're all really supporting each other, whatever life is throwing at us. I want to take a step back for a moment. We talk a lot about cybersecurity, but I always think it's interesting to ask practitioners how they define cybersecurity. Oh, uh, the guilty secret again. Uh, I used to hate the word cyber. In fact, to be honest, it still makes me a little bit uncomfortable. So for me, cybersecurity or security is like the oldest problem we have. If you have two populations of people, you know, way back just after dinosaurs and they're living in two caves and one cave has really good weapons and cooking equipment and the other cave's a bit cold and hungry, then the cold and hungry cave were always going to try and find ways to get hold of the resources that had value at the time. So weaponry, cooking things. Now, all we've done over time is change the thing of value and change the ways in which we go about that. So cybersecurity is our latest iteration of a very human issue. And that's our tendency as humans to want things that are not ours and to take many routes to get them. I think cybersecurity is difficult for us to understand and act on, though, because unlike in the old days where, you know, if a bear was coming to eat you, you saw it and you felt fear and you ran away, cybersecurity threats, you can't see them, smell them, taste them. And so it can be very easy to feel like they're very far away or they're not relevant to us. And I think that's what makes this a really challenging space. It goes very fast. It's a very human problem. And it's a problem that we tend to forget it exists when it's not in our face all the time. When I speak to businesses about cybersecurity, one of the sticking points is how do you balance security with still functioning as a business? Do you have any thoughts about how they can reach that right balance? Yeah, I I think security has to be part of running a quality business. So we tend to like to think of it as as an additional thing. We come to later. But the most successful businesses I work with, they embrace it when they're teeny tiny and all the way through their growth. And it's not just about stopping things and slowing things down and managing risk. It's about understanding our responsibilities on the data that we store, on the people that we employ, the systems we build. And it's about being able to communicate the trust that is being shared between us and our customers or us and our integration partners. So instead of framing it as a negative that can slow you down, we try and focus it on how can this speed us up? 
How can this help us be more innovative? How can it help us focus? And by doing that, we treat it the same way as anything like scaling or performance or usability. It's something that can make us better and stronger, not just get in our way. I want to talk about the importance of cybersecurity for everyone. We often have conversations about cybersecurity when it comes to big companies, when it comes to the government. But why is it important for everyone? Well, this is this is my pet project, if I'm honest. So let me give you some stats from locally and maybe a challenge to your audience. Wherever you are located in the world, you could go and find the similar numbers. So in New Zealand and Australia, where I'm based, uh, we have 729,000 businesses that employ people but are counted as small or medium businesses. That's a lot of people employed in that space. When we look at it, our enterprises, while they're big in size, are small in number. We focus a lot of effort on those Big in size, small in number, though. Now, if you think about our businesses, they're interconnected. Even our, you know, a small uh, software company like ours, we have dozens of suppliers that we buy and sell from. We have customers in different parts of the world. And every time these connections form between us, risk is shared. So, for example, if I order some cupcakes from a local bakery via my email account, I've created a trust there with some data exchange. Now, is a bakery likely to have cybersecurity protections? Oh, goodness, no. But if their email system is breached and somebody is able to use that email address to contact me or to see my bank details from an invoice, then that's an exposure my company has, even though it's from a tiny, tiny, non-technical business. Now, if you scale that up to the interconnectivity between all of our organizations and all of the software we build, you start to see that we can't tackle this just as enterprises. Every part in that network, every part in that chain needs to be protected. I start every episode of this podcast along with every cybersecurity or data privacy law class that I teach with a discussion of a cybersecurity, privacy, or technology story in the news. Is there a story in the news that we should be keeping our eye on? Well, I'm I'm very excited for America, actually, uh, after this week. Uh, So whatever side of the divide you stand on politically, the statement this week out of the Biden administration about the new cybersecurity strategy and the proposals for software security liability are huge. So until now, software, unlike many things we build, so if you build a bridge or a house or a car, if it goes wrong, you are liable as a manufacturer. In the software world, that's not the case. And the proposals out of that strategy are going to push that liability down to software manufacturers. Now, like I said, all of our software is connected. So even if it only affects the large organizations to start with, they will start rippling that requirement down onto their suppliers and their suppliers in turn. Now, that's going to be a very significant change for our ecosystem. And what does it mean to be liable? How much will that cost? Will that get in the way of innovation? Will smaller organizations be able to meet that bar? And if they can't, how can we help the small organizations that we need for innovation still operate without the fear that taking that risk will lead to serious liability? So I think it's a really positive announcement, but it's one that's going to have a huge impact. So definitely want to watch. Read the full version of the strategy if you do have the time. It's a pretty weighty PDF, but, you know, don't read it just before bed. Um, But have a watch. Uh, Ignore the marketing spiel that will come out in the next two weeks. We just ignore that. But just watch how this plays out in implementation, because this could be a really significant change for the regulation of software. I want to switch gears and talk about the technology workforce. One 2020 study found that women make up about 29% of the tech workforce in the United States. A more recent 2022 
study puts that number even lower at 26.9%. As a woman navigating the tech space, can you provide some advice for our listeners, especially our women listeners, about getting involved in the technology field? I think um, getting involved can be very daunting because, it, it, you know, you are walking into rooms that don't look and sound like you. Um, and whether that's because of gender or any other diversity factor, that can be that quite overwhelming. Uh, what I would say is there's a growing number of organizations now who are really working on culture and that kind of working patterns actually suit having a normal human life. Uh, so hold your employers accountable, you know, ask them and be honest about the support that you need to accommodate whatever your world is looking like, because it could be your world looks a bit different to the types of people they've employed before. The other side of it is um, be bold. Now, this won't work for an American audience, but it, hopefully it will amuse an American audience. So I'm, I was born in the UK and I live in New Zealand. We're very, very good at apologizing for everything. And as a woman in particular, I can always feel like, I've achieved all these things, but I haven't done this last 10%, so therefore it's not good enough, and I'll sort of apologize my way out of it. Um, I have kind of a little system that I've implemented for myself, which is pretending I have a young 20-something white American, essentially, who lives in my head. And, you know, you, you know that confidence that some folks will have when they apply for things that they don't meet all the requirements, but they'll just give it a shot? You need to have that voice in your head. So it, it's strange for me because I don't live in the US and you'll have different constraints through your culture and upbringing. But it's definitely worth you kind of looking at when you push yourself forward and are bold and when you pull back and just checking you're not pulling back at a time where you could just be pushing forward. In the US, officials from the Department of Homeland Security have repeatedly talked about how the lack of a cybersecurity workforce is a national security issue. One of the ways to address this issue is by rec recruiting and retaining more diverse people in the field of cybersecurity. What should companies be doing to increase the number of women and people of color in the cybersecurity field? So the first thing is that we need to start looking in different places. If you're going to meetups at 5 p.m. after work every night and hoping that the dev community is going to suddenly become more diverse and that the beef one will turn up and you will find them like some sacred unicorn, it's not going to work. You need to figure out where folks are in the groups that you're not talking to and why they're not seeing your things. So it could be that your job adverts are not inclusive and that people are self-selecting out of them. So looking at your language, your tone and your packages, or it could be that you're advertising them in the wrong places. So these are places where the audience itself is not diverse. The other thing that we do is we don't advertise in our own circle because there's a bias by advertising just to people you know. So we intentionally throw our adverts into places that we Never really know who's there, just to see what comes through. And then finally, when you're looking at your selection processes, make sure that you're doing whatever you can to filter any biases. So getting multiple people to review, setting your criteria in advance so that they're non-negotiable and not subjective, and making sure that you're doing reviews of your process regularly to see if you're getting any progress, if you're actually making this better or not. One topic that we talk about repeatedly on this podcast is the importance of diversity in the cybersecurity profession. Could you talk about the importance of creating a diverse workforce in cybersecurity? Yeah, we, we build so many different types of systems. 
You know, when you look at what software and technology is used for, it's not just, you know, the big high-end systems that we think of, you know, the big uh, A-list Silicon Valley companies, the Twitters and the Facebooks. And it's also, you know, the software that your local gym uses to manage memberships. And it's the software that your local old folks home uses to manage the patient records. It's all sorts of things every single day. And to understand and build secure software that is usable for those groups, you need to have a perspective of those groups. If you live and work in the bubble of, you know, people who look and sound just like you, you're going to really struggle to build systems that work for other people. One of my research areas is software for the elderly, because I care for an 80-year-old who has low visibility, she can't see very well, and um, she has physical impediments. Now, for her, she can't use the fingerprint sensor on a phone because her fingers are so wrinkly that the fingerprint sensors don't recognize them at all. Now, if we had a diverse workforce that had people who were older, who had different skin tones, who had different ages and all of the different ways that we can be a diverse population, many more of these things would come out in our planning and testing phases so that our systems would be more inclusive as a result. I don't think it's okay for our cybersecurity industry to not represent the people we're trying to protect. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Could you let people know of any upcoming conferences that you'll be speaking at and where people can find you on the Internet? Absolutely. So um, I'm going to be over in the beautiful U.S. Uh, for a few times this year. So the next one is in uh, Render uh, in Atlanta. So if you're checking out the Render conference, which is going to be huge, uh, come and find me. We're running a workshop that's free for ticket holders. And also there's going to be a talk there. So you can come and have a chat. The other thing that you can do is if you visit safestack.io, we have a free plan. Now, this is not a trick. I promise I'm the CEO. I get to say these things out loud. Um, our aim is to give, literally for free, security awareness, privacy, and secure development training to as many organizations around the world as we can. You can sign up, no credit card needed, and it's good for a number of seats. You can bring your whole team on. So spread a little bit of love, spread a little bit of security, sign up for the free plan and get stuck in, because we would love to see not just the big wealthy organizations getting secure this year, but all organizations. Thank you so much. <laughs>